The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 21 Welcome one all, one and all. Um, I hope you're having a, uh, a, a not entirely stressful stress full last weekend uh, before the big festivities later on. I hope you've got your plans in place. I hope that you've not been too uh, uh, knocked sideways by all of the various lockdowns that have come into place in various parts of the world um, and that you have cups of tea or whiskies or pangalactic gargle blasters or whatever your tipple of choice is. You have your towel nearby and you are all in a hoopy and very fruity mood. Um... Before I start, uh, I'll do the usual thing um, uh, and, and request uh, those that can to do a fulfil my Christmas wish. My Christmas wish to you, listener and viewer, is for you to become a patron of the Bearded Wit. And you can do that. You can support me in this daftness that I, I, I've, I've started way back in... When was it? May? Uh, you can support me in this journey by becoming a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash thebeardedwit and signing up uh, for a little subscription. Um, uh, the, the bottom level subscription is 10 uh, US dollars a month. Um, and uh, think of that as a, I don't know, cup of Starbucks and a bun or something. Um, but if enough of you do that, um, I am going to be able to do so much more of this. Um, I have had and been very humbled by uh, the messages and the support that I've had from literally all over the world from you guys. Um, but it would be fabulous uh, if and only if you can afford to do so, you are able to become a patron uh, of The Bearded Wit because that will support me in keeping this stuff going, expanding it and doing more and more and more of this stuff. So it's less of a, a weekly thing. It can become, if, if we do this right, this could become... Um, my my way of life completely uh, in which case you'll, you'll never be rid of me so be careful what you wish for but that's my christmas wish to you lovely people out there in in um the bearded witland in in the galaxy wherever you are whichever spiral arm you're inhabiting if you could become a patron uh, by going to patreon.com forward slash the bearded wit i would be insanely grateful so please give it a thought. There's no pressure, he says, not staring into the camera. There's no pressure. No, there isn't. Uh, but I would really appreciate that. OK, so enough of that. Quick recap. Um, we got to a point at which, um, by the strange twists of fate that uh, occur in a Douglas Adams universe, um, uh, Fenny and uh, Arthur have met... Uh, they have had what is quite possibly one of the most awkward and yet, at the same time, most perfect first dates ever as a consequence. And uh, we pick up there. Um, uh, he has uh, Arthur has dropped off 
uh, Fenny at, I think it's Taunton um, Railway Station, uh, and she has vanished, and he has got her number. And this is where we pick up. That night, at home, as he was prancing round the house, pretending to be tripping through cornfields in slow motion and continually exploding with sudden laughter, Arthur thought he could even bear to listen to the album of bagpipe music he'd won. It was eight o'clock, and he decided he would make himself, force himself, to listen to the whole record before he phoned her. Maybe he should even leave it until tomorrow. That would be the cool thing to do. Or next week sometime. No, no games. He wanted her and didn't care who knew it. He definitely and absolutely wanted her, adored her, longed for her, wanted to do more things than there were names for with her. He actually caught himself saying things like, Yippee! as he pranced ridiculously around the house. Her eyes, her hair, her voice, everything. He stopped. He would put on the record of bagpipe music. Then he would call her. Would, would he perhaps call her first? No, 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 no. What he would do was this. He would put on the record of bagpipe music, he would listen to it, every last banshee wail of it, then he would call her. That was the correct order. And that was what he would do. He was worried about touching things in case they blew up when he did so. He picked up the record. A record is a very old way of listening to music, kids. He picked up the record. It failed to blow up. He slipped it out of its cover. He opened the record player. A record player is an ancient system of using the records. That's the thing that makes the sound, kids. He turned on the amp. They both survived. He giggled foolishly as he lowered the stylus onto the disc. He sat and listened solemnly to a Scottish soldier. He listened to Amazing Grace. He listened to something about some glen or other. He thought about his miraculous lunchtime. They had just been on the point of leaving when they were distracted by an awful outbreak of yoo-hooing. The appallingly permed woman was waving to them across the room like some stupid bird with a broken wing. Everyone in the pub turned to them and seemed to be expecting some sort of response. They hadn't listened to the bit about how pleased and happy Angie was going to be about the £4.30 pence everyone had helped raise towards the cost of her kidney machine, had been vaguely aware that someone from the next table had won a box of cherry brandy liqueurs, and took a moment or two to cotton on to the fact that the yoo-hooing lady was trying to ask them if they had ticket number 37. Arthur discovered that he had. He glanced angrily at his watch. Fenchurch gave him a shove. 
Go on, she said. Go and get it. Don't be bad-tempered. Give them a nice speech about how pleased you are, and you can give me a call and tell me how it went. I'll want to hear the record. Go on. She flicked his arm and left. The regulars thought his acceptance speech a little over-effusive. It was, after all, merely an album of bagpipe music. Arthur thought about it and listened to the music and kept on breaking into laughter. Ring, 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 ring. Ring, 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 ring. Ring, 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 ring. Hello? Yes? Yes, that's right, yes. You'll have to speak up. There's an awful lot of noise in here. What? No, I only do the bar in the evenings. It's, it's Yvonne who does lunch. And Jim, he's the landlord. No, I wasn't on. What? You'll have to speak up. What? No, I don't know anything about no raffle. What? No, I don't know. I don't know nothing about it. Oh, hold on. I'll call Jim. The barmaid put her hand over the receiver and called over the noisy bar. Here, Jim, bloke on the phone says something about he's won a raffle. He keeps on saying it's ticket 37 and he's won. Now there was a guy in the pub here, one, shouted back the barman. He says, have we got the ticket? Well, how can he think he's won if he hasn't even got a bloody ticket? Jim says, how can you think you've won if you haven't even got the bloody ticket? What? She put her hand over the receiver again. Jim, he keeps keeps effing and blinding at me. He says there's a number on the ticket. Of course there was a bloody number on a ticket. It was a bloody raffle ticket, wasn't it? He says he means it's a telephone number on the ticket. Put down the phone and serve the bloody customers, will you? Eight hours west sat a man alone on a beach mourning an inexplicable loss. He could only think of his loss in little packets of grief at a time, because the whole thing was too great to be borne. He watched the long, slow Pacific waves come in along the sand, and waited and waited for the nothing that he knew was about to happen. As the time came for it not to happen... It duly didn't happen, and so the afternoon wore, wore itself away, and the sun dropped beneath the long line of the sea, and the day was gone. The beach was a beach we shall not name, because his private house was there, but it was a small, sandy stretch somewhere along the hundreds of miles of coastline that first runs west from Los Angeles which is described in the new edition of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in one entry as junky, wonky, lunky, stunky, and what's that other word? And all kinds of bad stuff. Woo! And in another, written only hours later, as being like several thousand square miles of American Express junk mail, but without the same sense of moral depth. Plus, the air is, for some reason, yellow. The coastline runs west and then turns north up to the misty bay of San Francisco, which the guide describes as a good place to go. It's very easy to believe that everyone you meet there 
is also a space traveller. Starting a new religion for you is just their way of saying hi. Until you've settled in and got the hang of it, the best place to say uh, this is best to say no to three questions out of any given four that anyone may ask you, because there are some very strange things going on there, some of which are which an unsuspecting alien could actually die of. The hundreds of curling miles of cliffs and sand, palm trees, breakers and sunsets are described in the guide as boffo, a good one. And somewhere on this good boffo stretch of coastline lay the house of this inconsolable man, a man whom many regarded as being insane. But this was only, as he would tell people, because he was. One of the many reasons why people thought him insane was because of the peculiarity of his house, which, even in a land where most people's houses were peculiar in one way or another, was quite extreme in its peculiarness. His house was called the Outside of the Asylum. His name was simply John Watson, though he preferred to be called, and some of his friends had now reluctantly agreed to do this, Wonko the Sane. In his strange house were a number of strange things, including a grey glass bowl with eight words engraved upon it. We can talk of him much later on. This is just an interlude to watch the sun go down and to say that he was there watching it. He had lost everything he cared for and was now simply waiting for the end of the world, little realising that it had already been and gone. After a disgusting Sunday spent emptying rubbish bins behind a pub in Taunton and finding nothing, no raffle ticket, no telephone number, Arthur tried everything he could to find Fenchurch, and the more things he tried, the more weeks passed. He raged and railed against himself, against fate, against the world and its weather. He even, in his sorrow and his fury, went and sat in the motorway service station cafeteria where he'd been just before he met her. It's the drizzle that makes me particularly morose. Please shut up about the drizzle, snapped Arthur. I would shut up if it would shut up drizzling. Look, but I tell you, I'll tell you what, what it'll do when it shuts up drizzling. Shall I? No, blatter. What? It'll blatter. Arthur stared over the rim of his coffee cup at the grisly outside world. It was a completely pointless place to be, he realised, and he had been driven there by superstition rather than logic. However, as if to bait him with the knowledge that such coincidences could, in fact, happen, fate had chosen to reunite him with the lorry driver he had encountered there the last time. The more he tried to ignore him, the more he found himself being dragged back into the, gravi the gravitic whirlpool of the man's exasperating conversation. I think, said Arthur vaguely, cursing himself for even bothering to say this, I think that it's easing off. 
Ha! Arthur just shrugged. He should go. That's what he should do. He should just go. It never stops raining, ranted the lorry driver. He thumped the table, spilt his tea, and actually, for a moment, appeared to be steaming. You can't just walk off without responding to a remark like that. Of course it stops raining, said Arthur. It was hardly an elegant refutation, but it had to be said. It rains all the time, raved the man, thumping the table again in time to the words. Arthur shook his head. Stupid to say it rains all the time, he said. The man's eyebrows shot up, affronted. Stupid? Why is it stupid? Why is it stupid to say it rains all the time if it rains the whole time? It didn't rain yesterday. Did in Darlington? Arthur paused warily. You can ask me where I was yesterday, asked the man. Eh? No, said Arthur. But I expect you can guess. Do you? Begins with a D. Does it? And it was pissing down there, I can tell you. You don't want to sit there, mate, said a passing stranger in overalls to Arthur cheerily. That's uh, Thundercloud Corner, that is. Reserved special for old raindrops keep falling on my head here. There's one reserved in every motorway calf between here and sunny Denmark. Steer clear is my advice. It's what we all do. How's it going, Rob? Keeping busy? Got your wet weather tyres on? Ha ha. He breezed by and went to tell a joke about Brit Eckland to someone at a nearby table. See, none of them bastards take me seriously, said Rob McKenna. But, he added darkly, leaning forward and screwing up his eyes, they all know it's true. Arthur frowned. Like my wife, hissed the sole owner and driver of McKenna's all-weather haulage. She says it's nonsense and I make a fuss and complain about nothing, but... He paused dramatically and darted out dangerous looks from his eyes. She always brings the washing in when I phone to say I'm on my way home. He brandished his coffee spoon. What do you make of that? Well, I have a book, he went on. I have a book, a diary. Kept it for 15 years. Shows me every single place I've ever been every day. And also what the weather was like. And it was uniformly, he snarled, horrible. All over England, Scotland, Wales I've been. All round the continent, Italy, Germany, back and forth to Denmark, been to bloody Yugoslavia. It's all been marked in and charted. Even when I went to visit my brother, he said, and in Seattle. Well, said Arthur, getting up to leave at last, um, perhaps you'd better show it to someone. I will, said Rob McKenna. And he did. Misery, dejection. More misery and more dejection. He needed a project and he gave himself one. He would find where his cave had been. On prehistoric Earth, he had lived in a cave. Not a nice cave, a lousy cave. But there was no but. It had been a totally lousy cave and he had hated it. But he had lived in it for five years, which made it a home of some kind and a person who likes to keep track of his homes. 
Arthur Dent was such a person, and so he went to Exeter to buy a computer. That was what he really wanted, of course, a computer, but he felt he ought to have some serious purpose in mind before he simply went out and lashed out a lot of readies on what people might otherwise mistake as being just a thing to play with. How things have changed. So, that was his serious purpose, to pinpoint the exact location of a cave on prehistoric Earth. He explained this to the man in the shop. Why? said the man in the shop. This was a tricky one. OK, skip that, said the man in the shop. How? Well, I was hoping you could help me with that. The man sighed and his shoulders drooped. Have you much experience of computers? Arthur wondered whether to mention Eddie the shipboard computer on the Heart of Gold, who could have done the job in a second, or deep thought, or... but decided not to. No, he said. It looks like a fun afternoon, said the man in the shop, but he said it only to himself. Arthur bought the apple anyway. Over a few days, he also acquired some astronomical software plotted the movement of stars, drew rough little diagrams of how he seemed to remember the stars to have been in the sky when he looked up and looked up out bleh. I'll try that sentence again, shall I? Uh, bleh, 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 bleh. Where was I? <laughs> Sorry, I missed it. Okay. Arthur bought the apple anyway. Over a few days, he also acquired some astronomical software, plotted the movement of stars, drew rough little diagrams of how he seemed to remember the stars to have been in the sky when he looked up out of his cave at night, and worked away busily at it for weeks, cheerfully putting off the conclusion he knew he would inevitably have to come to, which was that the entire project was completely ludicrous. Rough drawings from memory were futile. He didn't even know how long it had been, beyond Ford Prefect's rough guess at the time, that it was a couple of million years. He simply didn't have the maths. Still, in the end, he worked out a method which would at least produce a result. He decided not to mind the fact that with the extraordinary jumble of rules of thumb, wild approximations and arcane guesswork he was using, he would be lucky enough to hit the right galaxy. He just went ahead and got a result. He would call it the right result. Who would know? As it happened, through the myriad and unfathomable chances of fate, he got it exactly right. Though, of course, he would never know that. He just went up to London and knocked on the appropriate door. Oh, I thought you were going to phone me first. Arthur gaped in astonishment. "'You can only come in for a few minutes,' said Fenchurch. "'I'm just about to go out.' "'No. Slurp of tea. Um, "'I've got a little frog in me throat. <coughs> "'Excuse me. <clears throat> "'Right then. "'We crack on. "'A summer's day in Islington.' Full of the mournful wail of antique restoring machinery. 
Fenchurch was unavoidably busy for the afternoon, so Arthur wandered in a blissed-out haze and looked at all the shops, which in Islington are quite a useful bunch, as anyone who regularly needs old woodworking tools, Boer War helmets, drag, office furniture or fish will regularly confirm, readily confirm. The sun beat down over the roof gardens. It beat on architects. It beat on plumbers. It beat on barristers and burglars. It beat on pizzas. It beat on estate agents' particulars. It beat on Arthur as he went into a restored furniture shop. "'It's an interesting building,' said the proprietor cheerfully. "'There's a cellar with a secret passage which connects with a nearby pub. "'It was built for the Prince Regent, apparently, "'so he could make his escape when he needed to.' "'You mean in case anybody might catch him buying stripped pine furniture?' said Arthur. "'No,' said the proprietor. "'Not for that reason.' "'Oh, sorry, you'll have to excuse me,' said Arthur. "'I'm terribly happy.' I see. He wandered hazily on and found himself outside the offices of Greenpeace. He remembered the contents of his file marked Things to Do, Urgent, which he hadn't opened again in the meantime. He marched in with a cheery smile and said he'd come to give them some money to help free the dolphins. Very funny, they told him. Go away. This was not quite the response he had expected, so he tried again. This time they got quite angry with him, so he just left some money anyway and went back out into the sunshine. Just after six, he returned to Fenchurch's house in the alleyway, clutching a bottle of champagne. Hold this, she said, shoved a stout rope in his hand and disappeared inside through the large white wooden doors from which, a dangled, which, from which dangled a fat padlock off a black iron bar. The house was a small converted stable in a light industrial alleyway behind the derelict Royal Agricultural Hall of Islington. As well as its large stable doors, it also had a normal-looking front door of smartly glazed panel wood with a black dolphin door knocker. The one odd thing about this door was its doorstep, which was nine feet high, since the door was set into the upper of the two floors and presumably had been originally used to haul hay in for hungry horses. An old pulley jutted out of the brickwork above the doorway, and it was over this that the rope Arthur was holding was slung. On the other end of this rope held a suspended cello. The door opened above his head. "'Okay,' said Fenchurch. "'Pull on the rope. Steady on the cello. Pass it up to me.' He pulled on the rope. He steadied the cello. "'I can't pull on the rope again,' he said, "'without letting go of the cello.' Fenchurch leant down. "'I'm steadying the cello,' she said. "'You pull on the rope.' The cello eased up level with the doorway, swinging slightly, and Fenchurch manoeuvred it inside. "'Come on up yourself,' she called down. Arthur picked up his bag of goodies and went in through the stable doors, tingling. The bottom room, which he had seen briefly before, was pretty rough and full of junk.' A large old cast-iron mangle stood there. A surprising number of kitchen sinks were piled in a corner. There was also, Arthur was momentarily alarmed to see, 
a pram. But it was very old and uncomplicatedly full of books. The floor was old stained concrete, excitingly cracked, and this was the measure of Arthur's mood as he started up the rickety wooden steps in the far corner. Even a cracked concrete floor seemed to him an almost unbearably sensual thing. An architect friend of mine keeps on telling me how he can do wonderful things with this place, said Fenchurch chattily as Arthur emerged through the floor. He keeps on coming round, standing in stunned amazement, muttering about space and objects and events and marvellous qualities of light. Then he says he needs a pencil and disappears for weeks. Wonderful things have, therefore, so far, failed to happen to it. In fact, thought Arthur as he looked about, the upper room was at least reasonably wonderful anyway. It was simply decorated, furnished with things made out of cushions and also a stereo set with speakers, which would have impressed the guys who put up Stonehenge. There were flowers which were pale and pictures which were interesting. There was a sort of gallery structure in the roof space which held a bed and also a bathroom which, Fenchurch explained, you could actually swing a cat in. But, she added, only if it was a reasonably patient cat and didn't mind a few nasty cracks about the head. So, here you are. Yes. They looked at each other for a moment. The moment became a, a longer moment, and suddenly it was a very long moment. So long one could hardly tell where all the time was coming from. For Arthur who could usually contrive to feel self-conscious if left alone for long enough with a Swiss cheese plant, the moment was one of sustained revelation. He felt, on the sudden, like a cramped and zoo-born animal who awakes one morning to find the door to his cage hanging quietly open and the savannah stretching grey and pink to the distant rising sun, while all around new sounds are waking. He wondered what the new sounds were as he gazed at her openly wondering face and her eyes that smiled with a shared surprise. He hadn't realised that life speaks with a voice to you, a voice that brings you answers to the questions you continually ask of it, had never consciously detected it or recognised its tones till now, said something it had never said something to him before, which was... Yes. Fenchurch dropped her eyes away at last with a tiny shake of her head. I know, she said, I shall have to remember, she added, that you are the sort of person who cannot hold on to a simple piece of paper for two minutes without winning a raffle with it. She turned away. Let's go for a walk, she said quickly. Hyde Park, I'll change into something less suitable. She was dressed in a rather severe dark dress, not a particularly shapely one, and it didn't really suit her. I wear it specially for my cello teacher, she said. He's a nice old boy, but I sometimes think all that bowing gets him a bit excited. I'll be down in a moment. She ran lightly up the steps to the gallery above and called down. Put the bottle in the fridge for later. He noticed, as he slipped the champagne bottle into the door, that it had an identical twin to sit next to. 
He walked over to the window and looked out. He turned and started to look at her records. From above, he heard the rustle of a dress fall to the ground. He talked to himself about the sort of person he was. He told himself very firmly that for this moment he at least would keep his eyes very firmly and steadfastly locked onto the spines of her records, read the titles, nod appreciatively, count the blasted things if he had to. He would keep his head down. This he completely, utterly and abjectly failed to do. She was staring down at him with such intensity that she seemed to hardly notice that he was looking up at her. Then suddenly she shook her head, dropped the light sundress down over herself and disappeared quickly into the bathroom. She emerged a moment later, all smiles, and with a sun hat, um, with a, and, and with a sun hat, and came tripping down the steps with extraordinary lightness. It was a strange kind of dancing motion she had. She saw that he noticed it and put her head slightly on one side. Like it? she said. You look gorgeous, he said simply, because she did. Hmm, she said, as if he hadn't really answered her question. She closed the upstairs front door, which had stood open all this time, and looked around the little room to see that all was fit, that all was in a fit state to be left on its own for a while. Arthur's eyes followed hers around, and while he was looking in the other direction, she slipped something out of a drawer into the canvas bag she was carrying. Arthur looked back at her. Ready? Did you know, she said with a slightly puzzled smile, that there's something wrong with me? Her directness caught Arthur unprepared. Well, he said, I'd, I'd heard some sort of vague... Yeah. I wonder how much you do know about me, she said. If you heard it from where I think you heard, then that's not it. Russell just sort of makes things up because he can't deal with what it really is. A pang of worry shot through Arthur. Then what is it, he said. Can you tell me? Oh, don't worry, she said. It's not bad at all. Just unusual. Very, very unusual. She touched his hand and then leant forward and kissed him briefly. I shall be very interested to know, she said, if you manage to work out what it is this evening. Arthur felt that if someone tapped him at that point, he would have chimed, like the deep, sustained, rolling chime his grey fishbowl made when he flicked it with his thumbnail. Give it a little bit longer. Neck is beginning to grumble a bit, so I'm going to be mindful. But we're a little, little bit longer, folks. Ford Prefect was irritated to be continually wakened by the sound of gunfire. He slid himself out of the maintenance hatchway, which he had fashioned into a bunk for himself, by disabling some of the noisier machinery in its vicinity and padding it with towels. He slung himself down the access ladder 
then prowled the corridors moodily. They were claustrophobic and ill-lit, and what light there was was continually flicking and dimming as power surged this way and that through the ship, causing heavy vibrations and rasping, humming noises. That wasn't it, though. He paused and leaned back against the wall as something that looked like a small silver power drill flew down past him through the corridor with a nasty, searing screech. That wasn't it either. He clambered listily through a bulkhead door and found himself in a larger corridor, though still ill-lit. The ship lurched. It had been doing this a fair bit, but this was heavier. A small platoon of robots went by, making a terrible clattering. Still not it, though. Acrid smoke was drifting up from one end of the corridor, so he walked along it in the other direction. He passed a series of observation monitors let into the walls behind plates of toughened but still badly scratched perspex. One of them showed some horrible green scaly reptilian figure ranting and raving about the single transferable vote system. It was hard to tell whether he was for or against it, but he clearly felt very strongly about it. Ford turned down the sound. That wasn't it, though. He passed another monitor. It was showing a commercial for some brand of toothpaste that would apparently make you feel as if you used it. No, sorry. <laughs> we'll try that again. <laughs> <clears throat> he passed another monitor. It was showing a commercial for some brand of toothpaste that would apparently make you feel free if you used it. There was nasty, blaring music with it too. But that wasn't it. He came upon another, much larger, three-dimensional screen that was monitoring the outside of the vast Sylvia Axasian ship. As he watched, a thousand... Horribly beweaponed Zerzlo robot star cruisers came searing round the dark shadow of a moon, silhouetted against the blinding disk of the star Zaxis, and the ship simultaneously unleashed a vicious blaze of hideously incomprehensible forces from all its orifices against them. That was it. Ford shook his head irritably and rubbed his eyes. He slumped onto the wrecked body of a dull silver robot, which clearly had been burning earlier on, but had now cooled down enough to sit on. He yawned and dug his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy out of his satchel. He activated the screen and flicked idly through some Level 3 entries and some Level 4 entries. He was looking for some good insomnia cures. He found rest, which was what he reckoned he needed. He found rest and recuperation, and was about to pass on when he suddenly had a better idea. He looked up at the monitor screen. The battle was raging more fiercely every second, and the noise was appalling. The ship juddered, screamed and lurched as each new bolt of stunning energy was delivered or received. He looked back down at the guide again and flipped through a few likely locations. 
he suddenly laughed and then rummaged in his satchel again. He pulled out a small memory dump module, wiped off the fluff and biscuit crumbs and plugged it into an interface on the back of the guide. When all the information that he could think was relevant had been dumped into the module, he unplugged it again, tossed it lightly in the palm of his hand and put the guide away in his satchel. He smirked and went in search of the ship's computer databanks. The purpose of having the sun go low in the evenings in the summer, especially in parks, said the voice earnestly, is to make girls' breasts bob up and down more clearly to the eye. I am convinced that this is the case. Arthur and Fenchurch giggled about this to each other as they passed. She hugged him more tightly for a moment. I am certain, said the frizzy ginger-haired youth with the long thin nose who was expostulating from his deck chair by the side of the serpentine, that if one worked the argument through, one would find that it flowed with perfect naturalness and logic from everything. He insisted to, uh, he insisted to his thin dark-haired companion, who was slumped in the next-door deck chair, feeling dejected about his spots that Darwin was going on about. This is certain. This is indisputable. And, he added, I love it. He turned sharply and squinted through his spectacles at Fenchurch. Arthur steered her away and could feel her still silently quaking. Next guess, she said, when she'd stopped giggling. Come on. All right, he said. You're... Elbow, your your left elbow, there is something wrong with your left elbow. Wrong again, she said. Completely wrong. You are on completely the wrong track. The summer sun was sinking through the trees in the park, looking as if, let's not mince words, Hyde Park is stunning. Everything about it is stunning, except for the rubbish on Monday mornings. Even the ducks are stunning. Anyone who can go through Hyde Park on a summer's evening and not feel moved by it is probably going through in an ambulance with the sheet pulled over their face. It is a park in which people do more extraordinary things than they do elsewhere. Arthur and Fenchurch found a man in shorts practising the bagpipes to himself under a tree. The piper paused to chase off an American couple who had tried, timidly, to put some coins into the box. His bagpipes came in. No, he shouted at them. Go away, I'm only practising. He started resolutely to reinflate his bag, but even the noise this made could not disfigure their mood. Arthur put his arms around her and moved them slowly downwards. I don't think it can be your bottom, he said after a while. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that at all. Yes, she agreed, there is absolutely nothing wrong with my bottom. They kissed for so long that eventually the piper went and practised on the other side of the tree. I'll tell you a story, said Arthur. Oh, good. They found a patch of grass which was relatively free of couples actually lying on top of each other and sat and watched the stunning ducks and the low sunlight rippling into the water which ran beneath the stunning ducks. A story, said Fenchurch, cuddling his arms to her, which will tell you something of the sort of things that happened to me.
It's absolutely true. You know, sometimes people tell you stories that are supposed to be something that happened to their wife's cousin's best friend, but actually probably got made up somewhere along the line. Well, it's like one of those stories, except it actually happened. And I know it actually happened, because the person it actually happened to was me. Like the raffle ticket, she said. Arthur laughed. Yes, I had a train to catch, he went on. I arrived at the station. Did I ever tell you, interrupted Fenchurch, what happened to my parents at a station? Yes, said Arthur, you did. Oh, just checking. Arthur glanced at his watch. I suppose we could think of getting back, he said. Tell me the story, said Fenchurch firmly. You arrived at the station. I was about twenty minutes early. I got the time of the train wrong. I suppose it is at least equally possible, he added after a moment's reflection, that British Rail had got the time of the train wrong. Hadn't occurred to me before. Get on with it, Fenchurch laughed. So, I bought a newspaper to do the crossword and went to the buffet to get a cup of coffee. You do the crossword? Yes. Which one? The Guardian, usually. I think it tries to be too cute. I prefer the Times. Did you solve it? What? The crossword in the Guardian. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, said Arthur. I'm still trying to buy the coffee. All right, then. Buy the coffee. I'm buying it. I am also, said Arthur, buying some biscuits. What sort? Rich tea. Ooh, good choice. I like them. Laden with all these new possessions, I go and sit at a table. And don't ask me what the table was like, because this was some time ago and I can't remember. It was probably round. All right. So, let me give you the layout. Me, sitting at the table. On my left, the newspaper. On my right, the cup of coffee. In the middle of the table, the packet of biscuits. I see it perfectly. What you don't see, said Arthur, because I haven't mentioned him yet, is the guy sitting at the table already. He is sitting there opposite me. What's he like? Perfectly ordinary. Briefcase, business suit. He didn't look, said Arthur, as if he was about to do anything weird. Ah, I know the type. What did he do? He did this. He leaned across the table, picked up the packet of biscuits, tore it open, took one out, and what? Ate it! What? He ate it! Fenchurch looked at him in astonishment. What on earth did you do? Well, in the circumstances, I did what any red-blooded Englishman would do. I was compelled, said Arthur, to ignore it. What? Why? Well, it's not the sort of thing you're trained for, is it? I searched my soul and discovered that there was nothing anywhere in my upbringing experience or even primal instincts to tell me how to react to someone who has quite simply, calmly, sitting there right in front of me, stolen one of my biscuits. Well, you could, Fenchurch thought about it. I must say I'm not sure what I would have done either, though. So, what happened? I stared furiously at the crossword, said Arthur. 
Couldn't do a single clue. I took a sip of coffee. It was too hot to drink, so there was nothing for it. I braced myself. I took a biscuit, trying very hard not to notice, he added, that the packet was already mysteriously open. But you're fighting back, taking a tough line. After my fashion, yes. I ate the biscuit. I ate it very deliberately and visibly, so that he would have no doubt as to what I was doing. When I eat a biscuit, said Arthur, it stays eaten. So what did he do? Took another one, honestly, insisted Arthur. This is exactly what happened. He took another biscuit. He ate it, clear as daylight, certain as we are sitting on the ground. Fenchurch stirred uncomfortably for a moment. And the problem was, said Arthur, that having not said anything the first time, it was somehow even more difficult to broach the subject the second time around. I mean, what do you say? Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing, uh, doesn't work. No, I ignored it with, if anything, even more vigour than previously. My man. Stared at the crossword again, still couldn't budge a bit of it, so showing some of the spirit of Henry V did Henry V did on St Crispin's Day. What? I went into the breach again. I took, said Arthur, another biscuit, and for an instant our eyes met like this. Oh, well, no, uh, not quite like that. <laughs> But they met, just for an instant, and we both looked away. But I am here to tell you, said Arthur, that there was a little electricity in the air. There was a little tension building up over the table at about this time. I can imagine. We went through the whole packet like this. Him, me, him, me. The whole packet! Well, it was only eight biscuits, but it did seem like a lifetime of biscuits we were getting through at this point. Gladiators could hardly have had a tougher time. Gladiators, said Fenchurch, would have had to do it in the sun, more physically gruelling. Well, there is that. So, when the empty packet was lying dead between us, as the man at last got up, having done his worst, and left... I heaved a sigh of relief, of course. As it happened, my train was announced a moment or two later, so I finished my coffee, stood up, picked up the newspaper, and underneath the newspaper, yes, were my biscuits. What? said Fenchurch. What? True. No. She gasped and tossed herself back onto the grass, laughing. She sat up again. You complete nitwit, she hooted. You almost completely and utterly foolish person. She pushed him, pushed him backwards, rolled over him, kissed him and rolled off again. He was surprised at how light she was. <laughs> now you tell me a story. I thought, she said, putting on a low husky voice, that you were very keen to get back. No hurry, he said airily. I want you to tell me a story. She looked out over the lake and pondered. All right, she said. It's only a short one and not funny like yours, but... Anyway, 
she looked down, Arthur could feel that it was one of those sorts of moments. The air seemed to stand still around them, waiting. Arthur wished that the air would go away and mind its own business. "'When I was a kid,' she said, these sorts of stories always die like this, don't they? When I was a kid. Anyway, this is the bit where the girl suddenly says, when I was a kid, and starts to unburden herself. We have got to that bit. When I was a kid, I had this picture hanging over the foot of my bed. What do you think of it so far? I like it. I think it's moving well. You're getting the bedroom interest in nice and early. You could probably do with some development with the picture. It was one of those pictures that children are supposed to like, she said, but don't, full of endearing little animals doing endearing little things, you know. I know, I was plagued with them too. Rabbits in waistcoats. Exactly. These rabbits were in fact on a raft, as were assorted rats and owls. There may even have been a reindeer. On the raft, on the raft. And a boy was sitting on the raft among the rabbits in waistcoats and the owls and the reindeer, precisely there. A boy of the cheery gypsy ragamuffin variety. Oof, ugh. The picture worried me, I must say. There was an otter swimming in front of the raft, and I used to lie awake at night worrying about this otter having to pull the raft with all those wretched animals on it who would who would, shouldn't even be on a flipping raft. And the otter had such a thin tail to pull it with, I thought it must be hurting it, pulling it all the time. Worried me, not badly, but just vaguely, all the time. Then one day... And remember, I've been looking at this picture every night for years. I suddenly noticed the raft had a sail. Never seen it before. The otter was fine. He was just swimming along. She shrugged. Good story, she said. Ends weakly, said Arthur. Leaves the audience crying, yes, but what of it? Fine up to there, but needs a final sting before the credits. Fenchurch laughed and hugged her legs. It was such a re sudden revelation. Years of almost unnoticed worry just dropping away, like taking off heavy weights, like black and white suddenly becoming colour, like a dry stick suddenly being watered. The sudden shift of perspective that says, put away your worries, the world is a good and perfect place. It is, in fact, very easy. You probably think I'm saying that because I'm going to say that I felt like that... This, that, that, that. Try that again. You're probably going to think you're probably... And again, you probably think I'm saying that because I'm going to say that I felt like that this afternoon or something, don't you? Well, I... said Arthur, his composure suddenly shattered. Well, it's all right, she said. I did. That's exactly what I felt. But you see, I felt that before, even stronger, incredibly strongly... I'm afraid I'm a bit of a one, she said, gazing off into the distance, for sudden startling revelations. Arthur was at sea, could hardly speak. It felt wiser, therefore, for the moment not to try. It was very odd, she said, much as one of the pursuing Egyptians might have said that the behaviour of the Red Sea when Moses waved his rod at it was a little on the strange side. Very odd, she replied, she repeated, for days before. 
The strangest feeling had been building in me, as if I was going to give birth. No, no, it wasn't like that. In fact, it was more, it was more as if I was being connected into something, bit by bit. No, not even that. It was as if the whole of the earth, through me, was going to... Does the number, said Arthur gently, 42 mean anything to you at all? What? No, what are you talking about? exclaimed Fenchurch. Just a thought, murmured Arthur. Arthur, I mean this. This is very real to me. This is serious. I was being perfectly serious, said Arthur. It's just the universe I'm never quite sure about. What do you mean by that? Tell me the rest of it, he said. Don't worry if it sounds a bit odd. Believe me, you are talking to someone who has seen a lot of stuff, he added. That is odd. And I don't mean biscuits. She nodded and seemed to believe him. Suddenly she gripped his arm. It was so simple, she said. So wonderfully and extraordinarily simple when it came. What was it? said Arthur quietly. Arthur, you see, that's what I no longer know, and the loss is unbearable. If I try to think back to it all, it goes flickery and jumpy, and if I try too hard, I get as far as the teacup, and then I just black out. What? Well, like your story, she said, the best bit happened in a cafe. I was sitting there having a cup of tea... This was after days of this build-up, the feeling of becoming connected up. I think you, I think I was buzzing gently. And then there was some work going on at a building site opposite the cafe, and I was watching it through the window, over the room of my teacup, which I always find is the nicest way of watching other people working. And suddenly there it was, in my mind, this message from somewhere, and it was so simple it made sense of everything. I just sat up and thought, Oh, oh, well, that's all right then. I was so startled I almost dropped my teacup. In fact, I think I did drop it. Yes, she added thoughtfully. I'm sure I did. How much sense am I making? It was uh, fine up to the bit about the teacup. She shook her head and shook it again as if trying to clear it, which is, in fact, what she was trying to do. Well, that's it, she said. Fine, up to the bit about the teacup. That was the point at which it seemed to me, quite literally, as if the world exploded. What? I know it sounds crazy, and everybody says it was hallucinations, but if that was hallucinations, then I have hallucinations in big screen 3D with 16-track Dolby stereo and should probably hire myself out to people who were bored with shark movies. It was as if the ground was literally ripped from under my feet, and... and... She patted the the grass lightly, as if for reassurance, and then seemed to change her mind about what she was going to say. And I woke up in hospital. I suppose I've been in and out ever since, and that's why I have an instinctive nervousness, she said, of sudden startling revelations that everything's going to be all right. She looked up at him. Arthur had simply ceased to worry himself about the strange anomalies surrounding his return to his homeworld, 
or rather had consigned them to that part of his mind marked things to think about, urgent. Here is the world, he had told himself. Here, for whatever reason, is the world, and here it stays, with me on it. But now it seemed to go swimmy around him, as it had that night in the car when Fenchurch's brother had told him the silly stories of the CIA agent in the reservoir. The French embassy went swimmy. The trees went swimmy. The lake went swimmy. But this was perfectly natural and nothing to be alarmed by, because the grey goose had just landed on it. The geese were having a great relaxed time and had no major answers that they wished to know the questions to. Anyway, said Fenchurch, suddenly and brightly and with a bright-eyed, wide-eyed smile, there is something wrong with part of me, and you've got to find out what it is. We'll go home. Arthur shook his head. What's the matter? she said. Arthur had shaken his head not to disagree with her suggestion, which he thought was actually truly excellent, one one of the world's greatest suggestions, but because he was just for a moment trying to free himself of the recurring impression, um, he just sorry. But because he was just for a moment trying to free himself of the recurring impression he had that just when he was least expecting it, the universe would suddenly leap out from behind a door and go boo at him. "'I'm just trying to get this entirely clear in my mind,' said Arthur. "'You say you felt as if the earth actually exploded?' "'Yes, more than felt. "'Which is what everybody else says,' he said hesitantly. "'It's hallucinations.' "'Yes, but Arthur, that's ridiculous. People think that if you just say hallucinations, it explains anything you want to explain, and eventually whatever it is you can't understand will just go away. It's just a word. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't explain why the dolphins disappeared. No, said Arthur. No, he added thoughtfully. No, he added again even more thought. What? he said at last. It doesn't explain the dolphins disappearing. No, said Arthur. I see that. Which dolphins do you mean? What do you mean, which dolphins? I'm talking about when all the dolphins disappeared. She put her hand on his knee, which made him realise that the tingling going up and down his spine was not her gently stroking his back, and must instead have been one of the nasty, creepy feelings he often gets when people were trying to explain things to him. The dolphins? Yes. All the dolphins, said Arthur, disappeared? Yes. The dol the dolphin you're saying the dolphins all disappeared. Is this, said Arthur, trying to be absolutely clear on this point, what you're saying? Arthur, where have you been, for heaven's sake? The dolphins all disappeared on the same day. I she stared him intently in his startled eyes. What? No dolphins. All gone. Vanished. She searched his face. Did, did you really not know that? It was clear from his startled expression that he did not. Where did they go? he asked. No one knows. That's what vanished means. She paused. Well, there is one man who says he knows about it. 
"'But everyone says he lives in California,' she said, and is mad. "'I was thinking of going to see him "'because it seems the only lead I've got on what happened to me.' "'She shrugged and then looked at him long and quietly. "'She laid her hand on the side of his face. "'I would really like to know where you've been,' she said. "'I think something terrible happened to you.' And I think that's why we recognised each other. She glanced around the park, which was now being gathered into the clutches of dusk. Well, she said, now you've got someone you can tell. Arthur slowly let out a long year of a sigh. It is he said, a very long story. Fenchurch leaned across him and drew over her canvas bag. Is it anything to do with this? she said. The thing she took out of her bag was battered and travel-worn, as it had been hurled into prehistoric rivers, baked under the sun that shines so redly on the deserts of Cacrophoon, half-buried in the marble sands that fringe the heavy-vapoured oceans of San Straginus V, frozen on the glaciers of the moon of Jaglan Beta, sat on, kicked around spaceships, scuffed and generally abused, and since its makers had thought that these were clearly the sorts of things that might happen to it, they had thoughtfully encased it in a sturdy plastic cover and written on it, in large, friendly letters, the words, Don't panic. Where did you get this? said Arthur, startled, taking it from her. Ah, she said, I thought it was yours. In Russell's car that night, you dropped it. Have you been to many of these places? Arthur drew the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from its cover. It was like a small, thin, flexible laptop, laptop computer. He tapped some buttons till the screen flared with text. A few, he said. Can we go to them? What? No, said Arthur abruptly, and then relented, but relented warily. Do you want to? he said, hoping for the answer no. It was an act of great generosity on his part not to say, You don't want to, do you? which expects it. Yes, she said. I want to know what the message was that I lost, and where it came from. "'Because I don't think,' she added, "'standing up, looking around the increasing gloom of the park, "'that it came from here. "'I'm not even sure,' she further added, "'slipping her arm around Arthur's waist, "'that I know where here is.'" Boom! That's where we're going to leave it. That is where we will leave it for this evening. Thank you all so much for sticking with us. Um, I really appreciate you listening in and sharing this journey with me. 
Um, uh, we, I'm aiming to do broadcasts regularly over the Christmas period. So again, uh, as we've got kind of the right sort of cadence, we can do one next Sunday and then one the Sunday after to keep the ball rolling. I will uh, set up a new series of uh, events on the Facebook page so you can sort of uh, clock those into your diaries so you get reminders and so on and so forth. Don't forget, uh, if you're listening to this on The Bearded Wit, um, that on Monday the 21st, uh, i.e. tomorrow, um, I will be doing a broadcast um, of A Christmas Carol. I'm going to be doing... I've been doing a reading of that uh, regularly for the last three years, I think it is, um, at a fantastic local uh, coffee shop here in uh, my hometown in Denmark in Colling. Um, and unfortunately, of course, because of the, the, the COVID-19 restrictions that are, are sort of out all over the place, many places have been shut down. However, we are going, we had an event planned and had a lot of things going on, but uh, uh, it's not able to do the, the physical event, but we are going to do a live streamed version of it. Um, and that will be occurring at um, 1800, 6pm uh, CET uh, tomorrow. Um, so do tune in. You'll get a, a probably a, it'll get flagged up that it's happening. So do um, uh, come along and listen to that. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for your attention. Don't hesitate to become a patron of this uh, on patreon.com forward slash the bearded wit. Do send me messages. We love. Oh, I love getting messages from you guys. Um, I read them all. Uh, I appreciate them all. I reply to them all as soon as I can. Um, but thank you so much for, for joining me again this evening. If you're going to join me tomorrow evening, um, I'm, I'll love to see you for uh, A Christmas Carol. Um, uh, in the meantime, look after yourselves. Uh, stay hoopy. And have an absolutely fantastic, if undoubtedly unusual, Christmas be good to yourselves, be good to the people around you, be good to the people in your universe, uh, and I'll see you again very soon. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye now. <laughs>